I always hate to break up good fellowship, but it's time for us to get started. If you would, please bow with me and we'll start with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day that you've given us and for this time that we have to come together and to learn more about your word. We pray that we will always be good students of your word and try to focus on learning more and more about you and that we will do all that we can to help those in our community. We are thankful, dear Lord, for all that you've given us. We know that you've given us far more than we ever truly could ask for, but we're thankful most of all for the gift of your Son, through whom we have the remission of our sins. It's Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We started on Sunday going through the book of James, and so we'll be starting in James chapter 1 tonight. Now, someone could, just for sake of review, tell me who was the audience for the book of James? Who was James writing to? Who was his audience? The twelve tribes. Specifically, we're talking about Jewish Christians, those who have been scattered abroad by the persecution in Jerusalem and other regions around that. And they were spread abroad to all these different regions. And James is writing this letter as a way of encouragement trying to help them to stay focused, to keep a proper mindset, and to remember specifically what? We talked about this at the very end of class, and this is for the best listeners that we had. What was the last thing we talked about? He was doing this to remind them of what? To remember the what? Starts with an S. The what? <laughs> remember the source. Remember the source. He was telling them all these good things, but it was, he was trying to remind them it comes from someone. Keep that in mind. Focus on the source. And that's really going to be the theme as we go throughout the book is remember the source. He was encouraging them to have these mindsets because in a world where you've been scattered abroad, you've been uprooted, it's going to be very difficult to hold to your faith and to hold to what you're believing in because it's going to be difficult. You're going to be facing those who hate you. You're in a strange environment where they have different religions. You're going to be trying to hold on to these things. And he's trying to help them stay together, to stay united, to remember the source. Now, specifically, we got down to, I believe, verse 9. That's James chapter 1, verse 9. If someone could read verses 9 through 11. So here James is telling these people, he says, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Now, what do you think low degree means? We're talking about low degree. What does that bring to mind? As measured by the world standards, probably education-wise, probably financially, position in life. Yeah. Basically, you're in low physical standing, whether that be wealthy, whether that be or those who are of low wealth, those who are in impoverished, those who don't have the proper food that they need, things of that nature. You're in a low physical standing. He tells them to rejoice in that they're exalted. Now, who's doing the exalting here? Are they literally brought out of their place of impoverishment and they're now wealthy people and very well supplied? Is that what we're talking about? So what's he referring to? 
Spiritually exalted. This reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. He's telling these people that they are to rejoice and that they receive the things that they need from God. Now that seems a little interesting since what we read next is that the rich in his humiliation, the rich is made low and the poor is exalted. Now, why would that be? Is God literally taking away their wealth and taking away their standing? No. You see, what we're talking about here is that God is giving the things that people need to the ones who need it. If you're a rich man, what is probably your greatest temptation? To be big-headed. To be big-headed. I like that one. We're going to keep that one. Go, to be big-headed. You have everything that you need, so in your own mind you could say, I don't need God. Why do I need God to take care of me when I have every single one of my physical needs taken care of? So what he's saying, the rich, if you are a Christian, what does that require you to do? Humble yourself. You bring yourself lower. But if you're poor, the world despises you, but in the eyes of God, what have you done? You're elevated. You're held up. You're honored. So he's telling these people, if you are in the Lord, in Christ... If you're poor, you're exalted. If you're rich, you're made low because that's what you need. That's what you need. You think a rich man's going to go around praying to the Lord, asking for help with his financial issues? No, it's taken care of. It's taken care of. What he probably is going to be needing to pray is, Lord, help me stay humble. Help me to know my place. Help me not to get too big-headed. To keep myself where I need to be. So he's telling them to find joy in this, to find pleasure in this, not because it's an easy or comfortable thing, but because it's what you need. It's what you need. Again, following with this theme, remember the source. Remember the source of the things that exalt you. Remember the source of the things that humble you. Keep that in mind as we go through. There would have been drastic changes in these, people, in these people's lives during the times of the persecution. I mean, just take for a moment and think about Abraham. When he was uprooted, his whole family and everything that he had and had to move around, how many changes would have affected that family? And this man, Abraham, had far more possessions and far more security than these people would have had. Many of these people, this would have been a situation where you just get a tip that the Roman soldiers are coming or the Jewish soldiers are coming and you need to get out of Dodge. This would have been similar to what happened to Paul where he was let down from a basket from the city and had to flee because he knew what was about to happen to him. And it wouldn't have done him any good to stay. So these people are scattered abroad, but they need these, this encouragement to know that they will have what they need. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Someone read that for me. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. All right, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What's the context of that passage? What's Jesus talking about? All what things will be added unto you? The necessary physical things. The necessary physical things. How often do we doubt that God's going to take care of us? We just doubt it. Maybe it's not even a moment of, oh, I don't think God's going to do anything for me, but 
Maybe our actions say that we doubt it. We're scared to death that we'll lose everything. Well, David described he had never seen one of the Lord's people begging for bread. Why? It's provided for them. Not necessarily that God's going to magically open this little portal and a Big Mac's going to land in front of me. That's not what's going to happen. But the things that I need to survive, that's what I'll have if I'm trying to follow after the Lord. How many of you can think of an instance where things seemed really tight, where things seemed a little bit rough, and then it just seemed like it worked out? Usually as a result of other Christians banding together and helping you through it. I grew up in a preacher's family. Now, unlike a lot of people in the denominational world, that's not a very wealthy profession. (laughs) You don't always have a whole bunch of abundance for everything, but you know what? My family never struggled. We had what we needed, and I know of other families who had it much harder than mine, but they still had what they needed. Not what they wanted, per se, but what they needed. This is the same idea of what James is describing to these people. This isn't a prosperity gospel and saying if you follow after God, you're going to have everything you've ever wanted in your life but you'll have what you need to follow after the Lord. You'll have what you need to follow after God. So he's trying to encourage them in that because this would have been something on their minds. You're scattered. You don't know where your next meal is coming from. You don't know where your next house is going to be if you're ever going to have shelter again. So he's trying to encourage them in this that though you're facing these difficulties, though you're facing these troubles, you're going to be taken care of. You're going to have what you need if you're following after the source. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Specifically, I'm going to be looking at down at verse... That's the wrong passage. It's always fun when you look in your notes and you realize that you had the wrong verse written down. Basically, the whole point we're trying to establish here, though, is that he's trying to continuously remind them that what you're facing is terrible, it's difficult, but don't give up hope. Don't give up on God just because the world has turned their back on you. Don't give up on the church because the people of the world don't like you. Keep reminding yourself of the source. But let's keep going through. We're going to notice verse 12. Now this section is where we're going to take a change. What did we say was the very, in the very first verse, not very first verse, second verse, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various, or meet trials of various kinds. Now what did we say that term trial meant? Trials, temptations, King James, what did we say that that meant? Troubles, difficulties. The problems in life that they face, the persecutions they would have faced, things of that nature. When we get down to verse 12, when we talk about temptations, it's actually referring to temptation to sin. This is not discouragements or difficulties. This is actual temptation to sin. So if someone could read verses 12 and 13. Neither tempted 
All right, so starting off with this, he says, blessed is the man. Now, this is a word that's probably pretty familiar to us. What does the word blessed mean? The dictionary definition, to be happy or to be considered happy. Really, it's more of a having peace with who you are, having the happiness that transcends the difficulties. It's not the temporary thing of, oh, I'm happy right now because I got a present, but as soon as I break that, then I'm not happy. It's a satisfied kind of happiness. It's blessed. So he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood, or when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, King James is a little bit more concise with that and doesn't quite have as much to say about it, but it really kind of paints the picture for you. He says this man is happy or considered happy when he endures the temptations. Now, though this is a different kind of temptation we're talking about, it follows similarly the idea we talked about in verse 2. Why is he happy? Why is he considered blessed when he resists? Well, yes, he hasn't fallen into sin, so therefore he's still right with God. He has nothing to be afraid of in that sense. But more than that, he's gotten stronger. He's gotten stronger. The first time you face something, it's very difficult. The second time, still difficult, a little easier. And so on and so forth. You build up a resistance to it, saying, I'm not going to give in. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, Peter said. Telling us to resist those things, to flee from those things, to avoid those things. So he says this man is blessed when he does not give in because when he has withstood, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. When you withstand those temptations, those difficulties in life that are encouraging you to follow a wrong path, he says the end result is going to be worth it. The end result of what you're dealing with now is going to be the reward that he has offered. He's offered this to all those who are willing to endure. But verse 13 is one that a lot of people have difficulty with. Because it's very easy to fall into the trap of what James is talking about. He says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. How many of you have heard the statement, why did God do this to me? Why did God cause me this problem? Or maybe you've heard another one. God just wanted to give me strength. Same idea, both are wrong. Both are wrong. How do I know that? Job. Job is a great example of explaining how this works. Did God allow Job to be tempted? Yes. Who was doing the tempting? Satan. God allowed it to happen because he was proving Job to the devil, but he never did the tempting. God was not responsible for the things that happened. In fact, God was responsible for limiting what the devil could do. He held him back from what he could have done. If it was up to the devil, in Job's life, he's done. But God held him back. God said, no, you're not going to be allowed to do those things. So here he says, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Why? He's above. He's above that. 
God cannot violate His own character. And God is one that is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. We read in 1 John chapter 1, if there's no darkness in Him, there's no desire to sin. Now, why did Jesus have to come to earth? Why did Jesus have to be the one to come to earth? Because Jesus could be tempted to sin. That's Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, the devil comes to Jesus and gives him all these different things. What was the, one, the first thing he said? Command these stones be turned to bread. What was Jesus at the time? He had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry to the point of death. So he had that physical temptation. I want to sin to perform a miracle for my own benefit, not for the glory of God. I'm going to commit this sin to satisfy my own physical wants. Second thing, he's taken up to the pinnacle of the temple. He says, cast yourself down because it is written. Notice the devil even used scripture here. It is written that the angels will have charge over thee and they will not let you to dash your foot against a stone. That would have been a pride thing. The devil's testing him and says, hey, if you're the son of God, show me. Prove it. The angels will come and save you if you do this. Again, that wouldn't have been for the glory of God. That would have been a glory for himself. Which, what did we know about Jesus when he came to this earth? He made himself in the likeness of flesh. He glorified God. In fact, when Jesus spoke, he talked about glorifying God, following after God. He honored his Father. He lowered himself to the form of a human for this purpose. And what was the last temptation? He was taken up to a mountain, shown all the nations of the world, and the devil said that if you just bow down and worship me, all this I will give unto you. What would that have prevented Jesus from having to do? Go to the cross. If he had everything, now here's the kicker. The devil didn't own any of that. That wasn't his to give. Yes, the devil had the, the sin of the world and he was encouraging people to sin, but every one of those people had a choice. It wasn't his to give. Only those people could give themselves to God or to turn away from him. But he gave that temptation to Jesus. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to be the sacrifice if you just bow down and worship me. And what did Jesus say? It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He remembered who he was. But Jesus was able to be tempted because he had to be tempted in order to be a just sacrifice. He had to be that person. Who sinned in the Garden of Eden? Genesis chapter 3. Who sinned? Adam and Eve, perfect humans. Perfect humans. Humans who had no sin. So if people who had no sin committed sin, a perfect person had to die to justify. To be, have justice performed, a perfect person had to die. Could any of us do that? Romans 3.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If all have sinned, who can be the perfect sacrifice? We can say, well, a child is innocent. They've committed no sin. Yes, but are they capable of choosing? They haven't sinned yet because they haven't had a choice to do it. Man has always had a choice. From the moment that God created the Garden of Eden, He put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in there. He said, do not take of the tree. The moment you take of the tree, thou shalt surely die. He gave man a choice. As long as man chose not to do that, man was going to be safe. 
the second that man took of the fruit, he was going to be in violation of the law. So Jesus had to be the sacrifice. But here we read that God is not going to be tempted with evil. He's not going to have that. So if he's not going to be tempted with evil, he's not going to be the source of temptation either. He's not going to be the source because in him is no darkness at all. We talked about that in 1 John chapter 1. In order for God to be able to tempt, he would have to be in himself partially evil. So that was not going to be able to happen. So then how do we talk about the things that happen in the world? If God controls the world, if God's the owner of the world, how are bad things happening? Because he gave each of us a choice. And as a result of that, people make mistakes. People commit sin. We look at the things that are forbidden to us and sometimes we take. We say, well, what about the innocent people who die? Again, who took their life? Someone commits murder, it's because they violated what God had set in motion. God said not to kill. Read that in the early, book, or early chapters of Genesis with Cain and Abel. God never said that, that was okay what Cain did. Everything that the world tells you today and says that that's God's fault, God has said is wrong. God has set something in place to say there's a punishment if that is engaged in. But in our world, they still want to blame God. Because in their minds, in a human mind, if you're in control of something, that means you are directly controlling everything. And for many people, they don't seem to grasp this idea that God giving us the freedom to choose was a loving thing. They're like, if God is so good, why didn't he just take evil out of the world? Because if he took evil out of the world completely, it means he has to take away our choice. If he takes away our choice, we cannot choose to love him. If we cannot choose to love him, we're not able to choose to follow him. He gave it to us so that we could truly understand what it meant to love, what it meant to follow after God. The reality of the entire Bible is to show us what God intended people to be like. What God intended for you and me. He wants us to be like Him. We were made in His image. Think about it. Everything that He gave us came from Him. Is it a wonderful thing to laugh? To enjoy a good joke? Maybe to laugh at something funny that happens? Is there a bad kind of humor? Is there a corruption of humor? Finding joy in the suffering of others? Is anger something that God is engaged in? Has God been angry? Is there a sinful way to be angry? All these things that God gave us was to be like Him to follow after Him, to be a reflection of Him. But because man corrupted what He gave us, now there is sin in the world. There's problems in the world. There's difficulties in the world. There's mistakes that are made. There's consequences to those mistakes. And sometimes those consequences don't immediately apply to us. As a result of that, things like this happen. Think about what these people were going through. They'd just been run out of their homes 
for simply trying to follow after God by people who claim to follow after God. It'd be pretty easy to say, God, why did you do this to me? Why did you run me out of my home? Why did you make the old law in the first place to create people like this? Think about some of the thoughts that might have been going through their head. James is telling them, you are good when you endure the temptation because you will receive the reward. But this isn't God's fault. Again, remember the source. He's the source of good, not of evil. He's trying to encourage them in this. But then let's look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, brings birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Notice how many times he used personal pronouns there. How he was referring this specifically to this person. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Not anybody else's. This isn't about anybody else. I can honestly say I've never been tempted to drink alcohol. I can honestly say that. There's other people who cannot say that. That's truthful for them. We're tempted by the things that are specific to us. Why? The devil knows. The devil knows what works on people. Here's a little tidbit of information. This might be very shocking to a lot of people. We're not very different from what we used to be. The same temptations that worked 2,000 years ago work today. We think things are crazier now. The reality is it's crazier for this country now because maybe this country didn't specifically have all the same things that other nations did. Homosexuality was rampant in Greece and in Rome and in the barbarian regions around northern Europe. It's a very common thing. Abuse was very common in the ancient world. Slavery, common all over the world. You can't name a country where that hasn't been touched. All the things we see in the world today have happened before. This is exactly what Solomon talked about in the book of Ecclesiastes where he said there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing shocking today. It's all happened before. But specifically, some things appeal to others more. It is scientifically proven that if your parents engaged in certain drugs or alcohol, especially while they were pregnant, then you're more likely to have the same desire. It's not always true, but some, that is a scientific fact that it does apply to some people. So some might be tempted to do that. Others see from examples. Their friends did something and they're tempted to be like their friends. They're tempted to follow after the people that they see in their lives that they hold as heroes. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, evil communications corrupt good morals. Those we choose to spend our time around, the things we choose to spend our time around affect how we think. Why do you think that you can look back throughout your own lifetime and see a change in culture in this country? Because people spent time with people who taught other people. That's how we got where we are. You can simply see this anywhere. 
Look in the classroom. Why do you think people have gotten so angry that they're not able to teach their ideology in a classroom? Because if they're not able to teach about their lifestyle in a classroom, that is their easiest way. That is the easiest way they can spread what they think without there being any buffers, anything in between. That's how the world works. We are not naturally born to know exactly how we're supposed to live. Does a child come out of the womb and start tap dancing? No. You might see that in a cartoon, but that's not real life. They have to learn how to walk first. Well, actually, they have to stand up first, then how to walk. And then it changes from there. Sin works the same way. How do I know that? We look throughout the rest of this verse. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here's a really difficult question for some people to answer. Is temptation to sin a sin in of itself? No, it's not. The temptation itself is not the sin. Sin is acting on those temptations. Sin, the temptation to sin is that's in front of you. You have the choice. You can take it. It looks good, but you can choose not to take it. You can choose to walk away to say, that's not a part of my life. If temptation alone was sin, then friends, we better start praying right now. <laughs> because every one of us have been tempted at one point or another. Exactly. Exactly. If temptation to sin was a sin in of itself, then Jesus is not the Savior. Jesus is not the one who is the Messiah. Because he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. That's how we can understand this. Again, he's reminding them, these are the dangers. Don't let these thoughts that you have, the temptations that you have, lead you into sin. Notice what he said. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived into thinking the things that are happening to you are happening from God. Don't be deceived into trying to reject Him because it's uncomfortable. Don't be deceived into thinking this is all God's fault. Why? Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of his truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He's saying, don't be deceived into thinking this is God's fault. Why? Because everything good is what comes from God. We talked about in Acts chapter 17 that we were made to follow after God. Made of one blood, all nations of the earth. Doesn't matter what creed we're from, doesn't matter what nation we're from. If you cut us open, we bleed the same. We're all the same. Made in the image of God to follow after Him. That was the purpose. Ecclesiastes, the last chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is the, here, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole literal duty of man. He tried everything else. He said, this is our purpose. This is why we're here. So he says, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Sin is only a partial gift. 
It might give you the things that are pleasing in the moment, but the end result is not. It promises what it can't deliver. When God makes a promise, when God offers something, it follows through to its conclusion. What it promises at the front is what you receive at the end. Sin promises you fun, it ends in misery. Sin promises you comfort, it ends with separation from God. That's the way that it works. It cannot deliver what it promises. So he's telling them that these good things come from God, come from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I like the way the King James put this. Whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God doesn't even give the impression that he's going to change, that he's going to be different than what he promised you at the front. God says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. God did not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But the law was fulfilled. God did not change from being a hard-fisted God of the Old Testament to being a loving grandpa today. He was just as loving in the Old Testament and just as firm in the New. That is who God is. God's not going to change to match our lives and our culture. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then verse 18 is... This one's a very fascinating verse to me. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that he sh- we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What did God call us in Genesis chapter 2 towards the end? When he created man, what did he say about the world? It was what? Very good. He said it was good before with plants, the animals, the light, the dark, the water. When he created man, he said it was very good. Think about for a minute, in the Old Testament, what were the Israelites told to offer as sacrifice? The best. The first fruits. They were to offer the first fruits of their flock. The best that they possibly could have. In the New Testament, what are we told to offer? Romans chapter 12, verses one, or verse 1. What are we told to offer? We're to be a What? Living living sacrifice. Our daily lives are sacrificed to live for God. The things that we want to do, what we just talked about earlier, we're drawn away of our own lust and entice. We sacrifice some of those things to follow after God. The things that might be in some of my best interest, worldly speaking, I'm following after God. We're to offer ourselves as a sacrifice. In Genesis chapter 3, God lost his first fruits the first fruits of His creation. We were separated from Him due to sin. And the rest of the Bible is about us giving ourselves back. Giving ourselves back to Him. And now that we have the church, now that God has established that, now that Jesus came on the cross, we have that remission of sins. We have that ability to come back to Him. Without that sacrifice, there would be no hope. No chance we could remove that sin, that guilt that's around us. But as a result of the sacrifice he offered, we give ourselves back to him. Worship, Christianity, has nothing to do with what we get out of it. That's a perk. Salvation is a perk. 
That's not the goal. We give God what He deserves. And really, all the best that we can do is still minuscule in comparison to what He actually deserves. Because of what He could have done and would have been very justified in doing. He could have just wiped us out in Genesis chapter 3, and that would have been the end of it. But He made a way of escape. Gave the opportunity for us all to come back. So think again about what He's telling these people. Don't be tempted into thinking God's doing this to you, because God sees you as the best He has. He sees you as the best that He has. The best that He has made. James is encouraging them to remember the source, to remember who actually God is. Not who you think Him to be. Not who you want Him to be. But who He is. He says, temptations, these difficulties, they're hard. They draw you away from Him, but do not be deceived by the world into thinking that's God's fault. Because here's what He actually wants for you. This is what He wants you to be. And He's laid it out for you. He's given you everything that you need. So then moving on, James starts another point. Now, what I love about the book of James is it's... This is the way my brain works, and it's a little crazy sometimes, but I think of it like a Lego set. You open up the instruction manual for a Lego set and you see the first couple pieces and that builds on the second couple pieces and the next couple pieces and so on and so forth until you have whatever you're building is in front of you. James builds on itself. Nothing in the book of James is an entirely separate entity. It's all structured together. It all supports the same thesis. So let's look at verse 19. Know this, my brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why would it be interesting, or why would James just jump from who God actually thinks you are and what God expects of you, what God wants for you, and dealing with temptation and immediately jump to be careful what you say? Maybe because some people were saying what he talked about in verse 13, that this was God's fault. He's saying, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Imagine if every single person in the world followed that standard. How much nicer things would be. Listen first. I'm sure we have probably heard growing up, I'm, I know it's not a new statement, you got two ears and one mouth, so do twice as much listening as you do talking. That's always difficult for a preacher. We have to talk so much. But that's the idea. We listen to what God has to say. If I go into the Bible with my own preconceived notions, with what I'm trying to prove, I can make that book say anything I want it to say because I'm approaching it from my own thought process. When I was at the Memphis School of Preaching, we had a debate class, which was both one of the most fun and most painful classes I've ever taken because we had two preachers and one of them had to take error, and one of them had to take truth. Now, I thought in my own mind, if I take error, that's going to be easy. I can talk about whatever I want to talk about. This is going to be so easy. It was not. <laughs> it was not easy at all. 
because you literally have to change the way you read the Bible to make some of your stuff make sense. Specifically, our topic was once saved, always saved. You can never lose your salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches you you can keep your salvation. There's a difference. But it doesn't teach you you can't lose it. And my opponent was bringing up verse after verse after verse after verse after verse that was talking about that, and it was so difficult to try to refute because, in fact, at one point I actually started teaching the truth and he called me out on it. He went to verses like Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the, or the father shall not bear the iniquity of the son, neither shall the son bear the iniquity of the father. Later on in that verse, or that passage there, around verse 24, I believe it is, he talks about the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. And what I had to say in that point was, well, that's talking about the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of men. He brought up another verse that said the exact same thing, and I said, well, that's dealing with the righteousness of men, not the righteousness of God. That's how far we have to stretch what God has said because it's plain. If I'm actually listening to what He has to say and not what I want Him to say. Context is drastically important when you read the Bible. If not, think about how many things you could prove from the Bible if there wasn't context involved. I could go to the Old Testament and say all genocide is perfectly fine. God told the Israelites to wipe out some nations. So I can justify that if I just had to find the right verse. But what was the context? What was God actually saying? If I do twice as much listening as I do talking, then I'll find out that those nations that God were set, sentenced to be destroyed, that was a result of their sin, of their rejection from God, of their hostilities. One nation in particular, the nation of the Amalekites. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Saul was told to go destroy that people. Everything, all the cattle, all the animals, all the people, all of it. Saul brought some back. Why was that nation sentenced to be destroyed? Because when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, those people would come behind and kill the sick, the children, the innocents that were in the rear of the, of the column. God was sen sentencing them for what they had done, bringing that judgment upon them. So there's a reason for why that happened. It's not just God saying, just go wipe out the nation because I don't like them today. He had a reason. So if we are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, if we listen more than we actually talk, and if we don't go flying off at the handle once we start talking, then more can be resolved, more can be learned, as opposed to causing more difficulties causing more difficulties, causing more fights. He says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I'm sure there's been many times where we've experienced, and experienced this where you start to get angry and all reason goes out the window. Or you've talked to someone who all reason goes out the window when they get angry. They can't even reason and talk to you enough to actually make it make sense. They'll start talking about something that has nothing to do with what you're even talking about because it clouds your judgment. The anger of men does not produce the righteousness of God. God wants us to be sober-minded, to have control over our emotions and control over ourselves. I believe that that's our time. I hear some of the classes letting out. So thank you so much for your attention. We'll pick up there next time.